Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. My guest today is Bradley Ford, city manager for the city of Waco. We discuss a weekend full of significant downtown events, the water crisis that was and now isn't, and his vision for the future of Waco. Bradley, welcome to Downtown Depot. Thanks, Austin. I'm glad to be here. I would love for our listeners to understand how one gets into city planning, city management. What was your path that brought you to Waco? Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, It's a great career, by the way. I'm going to give a plug for anybody that wants to go into city management. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I started um, way back in college, UT Tyler. raised my hand when a professor said, hey, I've got an internship opportunity working for a local nonprofit. I just happened to be the guy that said, yeah, I'll try that. And uh, that was the first step that led me down the road of public service. Um, Took that internship, turned it into a job at the city of Fort Worth, um, making maps for the police department. Um, GIS is what it's called. Um, And just every door that opened, walked through it and uh, led to more and more roles, more and more responsibility and um, ultimately here to Waco via um, City of Fort Worth and City of Burleson, and have been here since 2017, and loving it here in Waco. You've spent time in East Texas, North Texas, now Central Texas, professionally. Are there any cities that you see, either in the state or the country, as analogous to Waco? And after that, like, a city that you could see Waco aspiring to become? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I loved um, Tyler, you know, while we were there in college. It was a sweet time for me and my wife, for sure. We were newly married. And so analogous, definitely, because there's great open spaces, great parks, great people in Tyler, a lot of diversity in Tyler. So I see that as one of those that's kind of a comparable. Um, there's also a lot of wealthy and poor in Tyler. And so that's, that's something that we have here in Waco as well. Um, and then looking ahead, like, who do we want to be like? Um, there's a lot of, uh, places that I love. Uh, I love Durham, North Carolina, love, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, Greenville, South Carolina. Those are some out of state that I just see that have really taken that next step from a small business standpoint, but also from downtown and where their heartbeat is. 
when I hear those three examples, I think of the incorporation of nature and city life, mm-hmm. and I think of places where people can gather in public. Exactly. There's strong downtown areas, particularly Greenville, South Carolina, one of the most charming cities. Mm-hmm. I had a sister who went to Furman, and I love you can walk downtown. You can see that beautiful gorge there beautifying and amplifying the yeah. riverfront, which is one of the nicest areas in our county, has been really important on the city council. Of course, there's this large development that's happening at University Parks and 35 and the Baylor Basketball Pavilion will be coming soon. There's also talks about a cultural arts center, a performing space. So much activity on the river. How do you balance nature and humans and how do you help them coexist? Yeah, I think for Waco's history, um, you know, the river has always been lifeblood and uh, land uses around it have, um, you know, changed over time. Originally, that's where everybody lived and that's where commerce started. And then we brought all of our industrial activity onto the river because that's where water was. And those were the right things for the right time. And now we get a chance as this next generation to um, kind of bring ourselves back to the river and bring activity back to the river. Um, and the way, the best way to do that is through green space and public facilities and then mixed-use development activity around it so that it feels real approachable and it feels like we've turned our face towards it instead of turning our back towards it. So... I give the example of, you know, the, the convention center um, that's right by City Hall, right? It, it, it kind of blocked out the suspension bridge and the view to the river. Um, and so I think over the next 10 to 20 years, you'll see us open that back up and open up a great lawn so that between City Hall and the suspension bridge, there's a view corridor and there's a big great lawn so that people can interact and walk between the two places instead of being blocked off by cars and streets and buildings they'll be able to firmly interact with the river and um, I think that's what great cities do is they create those great connections and great public spaces around where they want people to be and that's why the the performing arts center is so critical uh, and the pavilion is so critical so we can create these nodes along the river where people are gonna be on the river whether they're on the water or not, um, they'll have trail access, they'll have venue access and views and fall in love again with the Brazos River and all that is Waco. Something that makes me proud to be a Wacoan is that this desire to come close to the river, to develop it, has been happening on both sides of the river. Historically, a lot of those dollars didn't go to East Waco, particularly when you're looking at how TIF funds were dispersed. And part of that is that more projects were proposed. Um, But I really love the fact that diversity and inclusion and equity, it's not just a conversation or buzzwords. It's something that our city and the leaders of our city are actively pursuing. Uh, Absolutely. I think the the East Waco story is still being written for sure. Um, Of course, we finally got Elm Avenue up and open after several years of construction the Bridge Street Plaza, those are a couple of great examples, certainly, of our investments in East Waco. But my favorite one is, of course, the We All Win program. Um, if your listeners aren't familiar, it's still active. You can still apply for it. But it's a small business grant program that 
uh, the staff and council created using our federal ARPA dollars that came down during COVID, and we allocated several million dollars to uh, the We All Win program, and um, we piloted the project in East Waco and in South Waco with the mindset that uh, we wanted to start in the areas where we wanted to make the most impact. And I, as of the last report we got about a month ago, 70% of the dollars have, flo- have gone into uh, minority and women-owned businesses. And so that pilot program has really helped a whole lot of East Waco businesses. And I think it connects with what you're saying. Like the, it's not just words, it's actions and it's dollars and it's decisions that are flowing to everybody so that we all win. Because when East Waco is successful, the rest of Waco is successful. This weekend, the Waco Cultural Arts Festival will be happening downtown near the Suspension Bridge. If you drive down Washington Avenue or Franklin, you will see a bunch of big, beautiful white tents, music, art, incredible time to bring family and friends. This idea of um, changing that area by the river, doing some construction, we saw that Gensler, which is a really lauded international architectural firm, had come up with a beautiful, almost futuristic-looking concept for redeveloping that area. But practically, Bradley, if changes like that were made, what sort of impact would that have on local community events like the Cultural Arts Fest? What might they be able to do that they're limited by with the current constraints? Yeah, I think um, you know, we've done a great job working with our partners like Cultural Arts or um, Iron Man or fill-in-the-blank fill event, um, working to close streets and uh, deal with obstructions uh, that are that are man-made obstructions, um, like curbs and six lanes of traffic on university parks, for instance. Um, the Gensler plan really, though, seeks to create a um, a set of public spaces where events like that can really become kind of have a home base that they can grow from. Um, and right at the footprint, right at the footsteps of the suspension bridge leading between there and the city hall with like a 12-acre public green. And the concept there being that you can host a 15,000-person event um, or on a regular day like today, people can just go hang out and play soccer or yard games, but they feel like it's their community living room. They feel like they belong, whether it's for a cultural arts fest or for, um, you know, just hanging out. And I think that's where we're trying to go with the Gensler strategy. That's what the best public spaces that we've looked at and interacted with do is they, they bring private development around it and activity and new living spaces and new restaurants. But the, the best parts of the development are those that are public and open uh, to anybody and everybody, because that fosters activity and community in a way right now where we're not able to every day. Like the the spaces we have are, um, you know, like I said, like Cultural Arts Fest is having to close down multiple streets, for instance. And it's it's a space built for cars as much as it is for people. So we want to turn that on its head and design these spaces for people first. You're hearing from Bradley Ford, city manager for the city of Waco. 
something that I've learned, Bradley, is that it's really easy to make beautiful renderings and much harder to <laughs> actually get these projects off the ground and developed. I mentioned last episode about this very ambitious program for redeveloping that corner of Austin and 4th Street, the Civic Center plan that thankfully did not end up moving forward because right now we'd probably have half a million square feet of feet of vacant office space in downtown. Honestly, the the images of a revitalized river look so incredible. What I keep coming back to is that Waco doesn't seem to have any billionaires. Yeah. And that's the difference between us and a Fort Worth where you have the Eamon Carter family or the Bass family. Mm-hmm. This performing arts center would be incredible. I don't know who pays for it. Yeah. What's the role of the wealthy in a community yeah. to help partner with the city to create the cultural institutions that we're looking for. Yeah, I think you're all over a really critical point here. Uh, each year, uh, the Chamber of Commerce sponsors a trip where between 30 and 50 Wacoans go to a city uh, somewhere around the country where we can learn something from them. And the last four or five communities that we've been to Um, each have a story like you're referring to, a a Bass family or a Carter Foundation or somebody that's really taken the lead to say, I'm going to do this on behalf of my city. Um, And we've not, we've got some opportunities for that here, um, but we've not yet seen that translate into a project that is um, like a Bass Hall or like a Sundance Square in Fort Worth, both of those. Um, but I think the the seeds are there, certainly. Um, what Magnolia and the Gaines family have done have, are a starting point for that. And I firmly believe we've got um, a foundation community that wants to get behind the city's top priorities, whether that be Cooper or Waco Foundation or Rappaport Foundation. Those are pieces that... It may not just be one of those for Waco. It may have to be all four of them or all five of them coming together and saying, this is the priority for the community. This is how we can move the community forward, and we all need to get behind it. And with the five people or six people, we could see a project, and and it, it won't be the, the Bass Hall. It may be the, I'll have to name it something else, maybe find a creative acronym for all five of them and add them together. But that I think your your point though that that it can't just be city led. Uh, the city is fully behind the vision. We'll have dollars behind the vision, no doubt. Um, but we need other people at the table with us to achieve the the renderings that you're referring to. As someone who had been involved in economic development closely, I wonder what you think about the balance between incentivizing large companies to come to Waco versus helping smaller companies that are in Waco grow Mm -hmm. maybe one or two levels. Not going to be at this level, but this is in light of the unfortunate news that Hello Bello, which was a diaper manufacturing company, they have gone bankrupt and filed for bankruptcy this week. In 2020, the city gave them incentives for them to come based on how many people you're going to employ, the number of dollars they can make per hour. It's a sticky subject, right? You want to support both sides, but you only have one chamber. You only have so many resources mm-hmm. to support. In light of this bankruptcy filing for Hello Bello, does that change your opinion or thoughts or nuance about this? I think it doesn't. For one, you know, Hello Bello is going to continue 
operating. There, it's a restructuring type bankruptcy. So I, I firmly believe, based on what we know about the company, that they will continue in operation. And um, but the the good um, side of the strategy that we deploy here in Waco is that those deals are all made with a return on investment in mind. And most often, those deals are made to where we're only granting back the dollars that the business earns. So if uh, Hello Bello or, you know, uh, one of, let's say the, the hotels in East Waco, for instance, if they don't generate certain levels of activity, they, they don't get the dollars back that they earned. And if they don't create the jobs or keep the jobs, then the agreements terminate. And so it, it's got a built-in financial model that keeps the public from being at risk. Um, and and that's, I think that's always good strategy, right? You, you're, um, you're making sure that the financial impact's there first and then the incentives are flowing back out of that financial impact. And that just creates some protection for the community. But I do think working with the small, which was your kind of your second point there, is critical. Um, you, you really need both. You need new investment from outside to come into Waco, and you need a, a strong business growth um, for your, your small businesses and medium-sized businesses. And great examples of that, of course, like a, like a capstone mechanical, for instance. One of the smaller deals that we've incentivized, but I mean, I think they're they're a little under 200 employees or so. Um, but those are excellent jobs. And five six years ago, you know, they they were under 100 100 people. Um, but it's a locally, you know, developed business. And there's several examples of that that we've incentivized over the years. They just don't bring the for a reason. It's not as sexy as like a Hello Bello. Um, name or an Amazon or one of those big announcements that you hear more about. Waco was under a water conservation watch for much of the summer. You and your team have helped manage us out of that to the point where now Lake Waco is full again. For those of us who simply turn on and off the faucet and aren't (laughs) involved in the minutia of how complex a project it is to manage water levels for an entire region. Can you give us an idea of how dire the situation was and what your team did in crisis to help make us healthy? Sure. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, the the solution there was just an enormous blessing in the watershed, right? We we were managing a a situation that um, ultimately we, we couldn't fix on our own. Right. But it was, um, of course, we were, uh, the lake is three feet overfill right now. It's 464, 465, something like that as of yesterday. Um, full is 462, four, 462 feet above sea level. We were sitting at 450. So doing the math, we were 12 feet low, uh, which put us um, right on the edge of calling for what's called stage three water restrictions. There's a four-stage plan. We're in stage, going to stage three of four. Um, the reality based on usage is by February, before the spring rains, we would have been in stage four, which is the most critical stage of 
water restrictions, meaning no outdoor watering, um, 40% water reduce, reductions by the city and others. Um, you know, for instance, you couldn't have power washed your sidewalk. Um, car washes, no more. Um, so there have been a very significant business impact, but also, you know, if you think about downtown, the bird poop we clean up all the time, right, through City Center Waco and the PID, and it wouldn't have been so pretty. Um, but ultimately, our team, you know, you ask kind of what, what did we do? Certainly, you know, whether you're a, a rain dance kind of person or a, a prayerful per- person, certainly there was a lot of that going on. Um, but then strategically, you know, from a city standpoint, we reduced our water usage at facilities by 30% or so. We spread the message of this is dire, uh, certainly. And then creatively thinking about how do we uh, get water out of the Brazos. Um, we do have water rights in the Brazos. We've actually acquired new rights last year as well, significant new water rights. Um, so our team thinking through, okay, well, how can we treat Brazos water in the event we go to stage four? How do we treat um, eight to 10,000 acre feet of water a year out of the Brazos and blend that in with Lake Waco water, which has a very different biological makeup? Um, how do we deal with taste and smell issues that, you know, consistency issues that might come out of Brazos water versus our traditional water and combine them together? And those are things that the community just doesn't think about. Um, they don't they don't know is going on, but there's teams of people at the city making those decisions, um, buying the pumps that would be needed and, and having the backup plans that in the event, you know, we're we're sitting in the spring of 24 with no, you know, Lake Waco at 45 or 48% capacity. What are we going to do? Um, and on the lake side, you know, when you get that low, our intake pumps moving into the plant are not in the right spot anymore, right? So the, the pipe that takes the water from the lake to the plant would be exposed, at least a couple of them. Uh, so those would have to be dropped down. That's not as easy as just walking out there and doing it. Like somebody has to go out and think through, okay, well, how do we engineer that on the fly and get that done? And that's the kind of proactive things that I think people don't understand go on in city government. And it happens in all 26 departments. Like the love getting to be part of and support the teams that do that work. The things that people wake up every day and flush that toilet or turn on the water or call for a fire department response and just hope and assume or take for granted that there's going to be a quality outcome on the other side of it. It's one of my favorite things. Another thing citizens don't often think about is the way that a lot of projects are funded. We know that our taxes don't pay for every single thing that the city does, and some of that comes from state and federal funding. I say this in light of a number of comments I've heard recently from people who live in downtown in particular who are A, grateful that the cities are being repaved and redone, B, frustrated that it seems that every single street has been fixed within the last two weeks, and it's been really tough to move around. Is that maybe tied into, hey, we have a certain amount of federal funding has to be used by this time, and so that's why we're doing as much of it as possible. How do you think about managing traffic while also improving the streets and roads? We're doing a whole lot more than we have done in the past couple decades now. Um, for context, 
Uh, local funding for streets has gone from a little under $5 million to over $50 million a year, so a 10x increase. And I'd like to tell you that's going to be temporary, but the reality is we have a $2 billion backlog of streets that need to be replaced. So you do the math, $2 billion. If you were spending $5 million a year like we used to, how long would that backlog take? Somebody get a calculator out, it's never going to happen. Um, and even at $50 million, by the time we get done with all the streets, it's time to do them again. And so this issue of construction is going to continue. Um, and, and predominantly locally funded, by the way. Predominantly coming out of sales taxes and property taxes uh, that people are paying. Um, but we've, we've got ourselves in a situation where for a generation or so we underfunded streets. And many of the streets got too far into degradation. They, they fell apart too much to just put a top coat of asphalt on them. Now they got to be completely rebuilt. And that's a lot more intrusive project than, say, just throw some asphalt on top of it. And the next phase of that initiative, you know, over the next few years is getting into neighborhood streets that haven't been touched in 40, 50 years. Curbs that haven't been dealt with sidewalks that are either non-existent or have six inches of topsoil and grass over the top of them. Um, so that we're, we're going to kind of bring that dilemma to the neighborhoods, uh, assuming, you know, we have the resources to do it um, and rebuild neighborhood streets is kind of the next phase. So I'd like to say uh, it will get better. The street condition will get better. The construction issues We'll, we'll be with us for a long time. This morning was the ribbon cutting on the new Magnolia Hotel, 1928 there on Washington and 7th Street downtown. How does having a public, quote-unquote, famous company like Magnolia in Waco make things easier or more attractive for the city on a lot of levels? Like we have more tourists coming. We can uh, hire better people because they want to come live in a community. And, and this hotel is really beautiful and emblematic of that. Yeah, it's huge. It's uh, Mayor Meek says it's the marketing campaign we never could have paid for, um, the, the gains story. And, and I agree with that. I think recruiting talent, recruiting new investment to the community, we now have a very positive story that almost every American has heard. Um, and that helps to balance out, you know, events of, you know, the 90s that, and, and even, you know, the, the Twin Peaks shooting that everybody had heard about that were negative stories. So now what's more fresh on the minds of America is, oh, there's this, this, this rebirth that's happening in Waco and it's very positive and very family-oriented, which happens to, I think, align with the values of Waco. The, the Gaines' efforts align very nicely. It's a, you know, to use a, the word grit, determination, and creativity. It's way more fun to tell that story and, and see people say, yeah, I've, I, you know what, I've, I've been there before and relate to that positivity versus events of the past that that don't foster a sense of I want to be part of that and so it's been a game changer it's been a game changer 
Bradley, I'll get you out of here on this. What's a, a book or a podcast that you might recommend to somebody who hears what you're talking about and thinks, gosh, I want to know more about how to develop a community or to design a city the way that things work? Are there any resources for you, or was there maybe a book that you had encountered earlier in your career that yeah. you look back as meaningful? Yeah, I mean, I go back. So there's two things. There's one recent and one in the past. There's a book that really impacted me in grad school. I went to University of Texas Arlington, and um, it's called Savage Inequalities. It was um, there's a first edition that was written like in the 90s, and an updated edition in the early 2000s, and it told the stories of in education and economics and social life, the inequalities that exist. And um, so that's a huge one. And then the other one I would recommend podcast-wise is there's a recent podcast on city management that's come out called uh, City Manager Unfiltered. And it's a guy that's telling stories about kind of the knocks uh, that city managers face and the hard times that city managers face and uh, some really good perspective on that podcast. Growing big. Bradley Ford is the city manager for the city of Waco. Thank you so much for your work in our community and for telling us a little bit about it. Thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. Thanks again to Bradley Ford, city manager of Waco. And thank you for listening. This has been episode 161 of Downtown Depot. You can catch me in between these episodes on KWBU, on Facebook and Instagram at Waco Business News. Join me back here on November 20th for my conversation with Kathy Weiss of Mission Waco. And again on December 1st and 15th for more conversation with inspiring small business owners, civic leaders, and engaged citizens, sparking Waco's revitalization. I'm Austin Meek. This has been Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. Thank you.